Welcome to the 50th episode of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Von Latke, and my co-host, Steve Seidman, will join me shortly. In today's episode, we reflect on the discovery of the Kamloops Residential School burial site. We discuss the latest revelations and reviews regarding sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces, and internationally, the diverted Ryanair flight in Belarus. Our interview is with Sarah Maryam Martin-Brulli and Thomas Junot, the co-hosts of our sister podcast, Conseil de Sécurité. At the very end of the episode, stay tuned for Steve's R&R segment. Thank you for listening. Stephanie, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Steve. I'm pleased that this week we are putting out our 50th episode. To me, that's a milestone I'm incredibly proud of. I'm also excited to unveil the crossover interview, we'll call it, that we did with uh, Sarah Myriam, uh, Martin Brulli, and Thomas Junot, who are the co-hosts of Conseil de Sécurité, our sister podcast in French. So I uh, I took a little bit of time to, to reflect on, on that and what we've built over the past two years together and then how we can continue to make the podcast better, how we can you know, broaden our range of topics and reach out far and wide for new guests for our audience. So it's been a moment of reflection and introspection over the past few days. What about you, Steve? Well, I didn't get much sleep last night. As, as you guessed from our interview last week, that I would not get much interview last night. But what I have been thinking about lately hasn't really been the podcast, but the news that came out, I guess, last weekend um, about Kamloops and about the 215 kids who were found in a mass grave. That's been kind of on my mind because, you know, our theme is Canadian defense and security. But one of the questions that comes up is the government of Canada, the Canadian Armed Forces, other elements of the government, are they making Canadians more or less secure? And it's very clear from the news that Canada and those that delegated authority to did much harm over the course of more than 100 years. When I moved to Canada, I didn't really get a lot of information about the story of the residential schools, although in the citizenship guide that I had to study in order to pass the exam, it is in one of the first pages, they discuss the residential schools, but they don't really talk about the, the death rate that so many kids died at these schools. So I knew that these things existed. I knew that they existed all the way up until 1996, which is, that's the statistic that always shocks me is, is how late into, pre, you know, into recent history. And then if you think about how welfare policies are implemented these days, where they take away kids from indigenous families because the family is poor. Well, why are they poor? Well, it has to do with the legacy of, of the past. So it's not entirely stopped. It's just no longer organized in places where there are breeding grounds for disease and where you have priests and other, other folks engaged in all kinds of behavior with complete impunity. I couldn't be, help be struck when I was reading about the diseases that spread through these these schools remind very much very much of my one of my last trips to Europe when I went to do research in Berlin. I went to Sachsenhausen, which is a concentration camp that was just north of Berlin. And in the discussion of the, the, that place and the materials they had on the walls and all the rest, the displays, it was very clear that 
in those places, those concentration camps, disease was part of the strategy. Now, it might have been more of a neglect in, in the Canadian case, but the parallels were, were very striking to me when I was reading the stuff the past few days. So that's been on my mind. I'm just, I'm just very curious as to, to what you think about this. Were you exposed to the how bad this stuff was when you were going through you know, elementary school, high school here or, or not? Well, I grew up in Quebec and uh, no, that was not part of, of how Canadian history was taught. And I'm happy to see now that my kids are, are better educated on this through school, but there's a lot you have to do as a parent with your children and raising awareness about the horrific legacy of the residential school system. And then, you know, you have also to put it in perspective because many of the organizations we work for, and I'm thinking of Queen's University in my case, have uh, taken up pledges. And if they want to contribute to true reconciliation with Indigenous peoples in Canada, uh, we really have to do more than issue statements because, you know, we talk about this legacy, but there's still so much to be done to improve the welfare of children and Indigenous families in this country. Housing, you know, safe drinking water, things that, you know, shouldn't be a problem in, in Canada and, and still are discrimination, you know, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. So we, we talk a lot about the past and, and those historical legacies, and it's important not to lose sight of, you know, this unfinished work of reconciliation that, that we've committed to. And so that made me think a lot about some of the commitments that Canada's made as part of its uh, national action plan for the implementation of its women, peace and security commitments, because traditionally those commitments have been about problems, you know, in other country, way over there, far away internationally. And uh, I was reminded of the fact that in the latest iteration of Canada's national action plan, there's this real focus on Indigenous women and girls. And of course, uh, this came back to, to memory when I was reading uh, coverage on Kamloops uh, and, and the burial site. So I think Canada needs to do much more. I thought that this step in the context of women, peace and security was an encouraging step where we stop making this distinction between our international commitments and then, you know, how we actually are doing back home. And then, of course, I really hope that Canada is going to be a more active player as well internationally when it comes to uh, the United Nations Declaration on, on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And I know that Cheryl Lightfoot, uh, one of our experts, has been uh, nominated as one of the key experts for, for the declaration because they work with expert groups. And so uh, I would really like for us to extend an invitation to, to Cheryl Lightfoot to come on our on our podcast to talk about Canadian diplomacy uh, in, in this space, how we can do better, but but hearing Indigenous voices, because I don't think that we've done enough on, on this podcast. And, you know, as I was talking about engaging in introspection and reflection over the last 50 plus episodes, I think we can do better as well as co-hosts. Yeah, I, th I think that's uh, a good step. I think one of the things that I, I've been noticing this past year is I think that we've done that something's better than we've had in the past. So in the response to the pandemic, the vaccination rates for the First Nations is higher, much higher than the national average. There was a real effort to get the vaccines out to them first. Now, part of that was because they live in places where they don't have good access to medical facilities. And so there's a greater need for that. So, you know, we're compensating for, for the negligence and, and, and stuff that we, that's happened before. But 
you know, that rolling out the vaccines fast to, to those communities, sending uh, CAF out to provide refrigerators for the vaccines, setting up quarantine facilities. So there, the CAF has done a fair amount the past year in the pandemic response aimed at, at these communities. So I think that shows some progress. So I think I think that is important. In terms of the CDSN, we've been trying to reach out more and we've, we've been talking to some people, some indigenous people to try to figure out the ways in which we can do a better job of reaching out to, to the, that community. Those folks are underrepresented in most places, including our own organization. And so we're trying to figure out ways to, to get them more involved. I really had never had much interaction with people, indigenous people in the United States when I was growing up. And, and it's only been the past few years that I've met met some people and, and, and gotten their perspectives on things. It's pretty hard to, to transition from that. I think we can express our condolences to, to the families affected and just really residential school survivors everywhere and hope we can contribute to keeping a, a focus on uh, the ongoing challenges with reconciliation, even you know, in, in our realm of, of defense and security studies, but also on a, on a personal and professional level where we where we work and live. Thank you for that. Well, we've got other bad news to get to, so we might as well move on. In the past week, we have Mercedes Stevenson interviewed yet another person about the sexual misconduct problem in the Canadian Armed Forces. She interviewed Lieutenant Colonel Mark Popov, who headed officer cadet training from 2014 to 2015 at the Royal Military College. And his basic story was that he saw things, he reported them to his superiors, his superiors told him not to write things down. And they focused more on squelching the, the problem of reports about the problem than dealing with the problem directly. And it was pretty particularly striking since he named names. He named the two commandants he served under, Al Meinzinger, who is currently the head of the Royal Canadian Air Force, and Sean Friday, who's now a major general with a liaison between Canada and the U.S. at Central Command. We talked about the Royal Military College on our 35th episode in October because there had been a StatsCam report that suggested that the institution was not handling things well. So is this deja vu for you, or did this, uh, this story give you sort of new insights into what was going on? Well, it's not new in the sense that I... I know RMC was under the microscope, and when the following commandant came, General Bouchard, he took upon the very difficult task of culture change in, in the RMC context. So I know there have been a lot of changes implemented in the past few years under Bouchard's leadership, which of course, you know, signaled deeper underlying problems with the, with the organization, and some of them came to light in various reports. And of course, you mentioned the StatsCan report, which brought some uh, interesting figures as an additional layer of, of information and, and data. So I wasn't so much surprised by, by the story as, as how precise the reporting was in terms of specific instances of allegations and how they were handled by individuals. So I think it was clear that there were some shortcomings with the organization, both in terms of treatment of sexual misconduct, but also the, the culture and uh, efforts to improve diversity at the Royal Military College. But I didn't know about these specific incidents so it was they were they were interesting to to read if disheartening but you know this this aspect of commandants being dismissive when it came to multiple cases of sexual misconduct cases involving cadets and and the way they were described in the story at least speaks to an ongoing theme that we've been discussing together this abuse of power where 
really it's there's a lot of discretion on the part of the commandant and if they're prioritizing the reputation of RMC or, or their own careers uh, in terms of dealing with reporting and handling of cases of sexual misconduct, then I think this is just another example of, you know, just faulty leadership. So I think the challenge for the new commandant, I mean, there's Commander Josie Kurtz, who's just been announced as the new commandant. The challenge for her will be about ethical leadership, you know, at RMC, and then how do you model ethical leadership? And then how do you educate and train young cadets in terms of ethical leadership, inclusive leadership? And, you know, what's also horrible in those stories is how individuals' career trajectories, those who speak out, how those career trajectories are stunted. So for, for Popov, he says he was specifically instructed not to write down or send emails about issues of sexual misconduct because they could be used in access to information requests on the road. And then he tried to be vocal about the incidents and he was, you know, muzzled. And uh, he says he was really admonished by some of the career repercussions Mm-hmm. Uh, taken against them and uh, he saw this as a as a, as the, the end of his career uh, the fact that he spoke up and that he tried to take action in these incidents of sexual misconduct so I often think about that about the the courage of, of those who speak out and then who are uh, dismissed when what they have to say or report is inconvenient for an individual or for an organization and of course same goes for the the brave individuals who came forward with these sexual misconduct allegations and then you know they have suffered the repercussions and not the perpetrators so I always uh, I think we can't lose sight you know there's the organization there's the institutional culture but we can't lose sight of the individuals affected in these stories and I, I think that's what I appreciate so much about uh, Mercedes Stevenson's reporting on sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces is that, that's always front and center in her her reporting and in the stories she, she publishes and, and also discusses on, on television and the interviews that she conducts. Then this coincided with the findings of an internal review that DND completed last fall. So I don't know if you wanted to say a few words on that because that's also significant. Obviously, there was also the uh, Justice Fish's report today on the military justice system. And of course, it's a bit too soon for us to comment on that because it's quite a lengthy report. There are I checked, I opened the PDF and it was 437 pages. It'll take us some time to really digest this document. And maybe in a couple of weeks, we can have a more, more fulsome discussion on that. But whether it's the FISH report or that review, that internal review that DND conducted, do you have some preliminary thoughts? Well, the one thing I, I had a reaction to was, was not the FISH report, which I read the 107 recommendations quickly this morning, and I'm not a legal beagle, so I, I have to chew on it, and we'll talk to somebody who knows more about it to get a, a good assessment. What really struck me, getting back to the, the the Stevenson interview from Sunday, is when she was talking to Popov, she reported statements from the Indeed as because they were asked to comment on it, and the problem is that those statements really did not jive with the reality, and it did not jive with what Jody Thomas, who was on our podcast two weeks ago, was saying about admitting that there are mistakes. The statements by D&D were like, well, you know, this this is, you know, the careers of these officers, yada, yada, yada. I mean, that's really what they did. The, the statement really yada, yada, did away and didn't really address at all. They were just trying to, you know, no comment as, as gracefully as they could, as opposed to having any other kind of statement. And I found that really problematic, given, again, the conversation we had with the leadership of, of D&D and CAF just two weeks ago that, you know, there might've been a, a little more 
sensitive messaging coming out, maybe saying, well, we need to take a look at these accusations. We need to look at these things. We need to figure this out, you know, maybe defer until they have a better grasp. But instead they were pretty dismissive. And I found that to be really problematic. In terms of the reports, you know, we're getting a lot of stuff the, the, this week, drinking from the fire hoses is, is what, what the folks call it in the military. So the fish report's one thing. The other report about the challenges of falling short on diversity is something that we knew about. So this is really mostly confirming our beliefs about, about the status quo within the military. And the challenge is, unless you fix these problems of hateful conduct and, 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 and sexual misconduct and abuse of power, you can have a really hard time recruiting from all parts of Canadian society because there are going to be people who consider themselves to be future victims of these dynamics. Now, the, the good news is your team on the personnel theme is having an event towards the end of this month that's going to be asking questions about this stuff and presenting research uh, about these situations and how we can do better. So hopefully by the end of the month, we'll have a better idea and some maybe some recommendations going forward about how to address these problems. Yes, and you're going to be participating to this workshop organized by Dr. Grace Scopio from the Royal Military College and Dr. Irina Goldenberg will also be participating, the co-director of the military personnel node. So I'm, I'm very pleased that uh, this workshop is going forward and is going to be also an edited volume because as much as it will shed light on the Canadian situation, it will also bring in lots of international perspectives. And sometimes when you're having difficult conversations about you know, diversity and integration within the military, there can be some uh, defensiveness and it can be difficult to, to talk about the problems and, and the solutions. And I find that bringing in international perspectives and, and best practices from other countries is a very disarming way to, to engage constructively on, on this topic. So I'm very pleased with how Grace has designed the workshop to emphasize this comparative dimension. Well, we'll have more to say about that. Maybe we'll have Grace on in July or August to talk about what the findings were uh, from that, that event. Now we have the in international news. I think one of the most striking things lately has been the challenges posed by flying over or near Belarusian and Russian airspace. I don't know if you have any trips to Moscow these days, Def, but it's going to be harder to get there since you can't fly Air Canada, I'm sorry, Air France or Australian Airlines since they've had flights canceled in Moscow because they, they don't want to fly over Belarusian airspace because the forced downing of an airliner that was supposed to be flying from was it Greece to Lithuania, Lithuania, where they took Roman Prodesevich off the plane. He's an activist and who's been seeking to have Alexander Lukashenko replaced as the president of Belarus, that uh, Lukashenko lost the election, but is still in power. And so they basically forced this plane down. They lied about a bomb threat and they took this guy off. This violates all kinds of norms and, and laws about international travel. The EU has banned the carriers that are registered in Belarus, so the Belarusian National Airline can't fly outside of Belarus, or at least not towards the EU. And the challenge is that Russia is really backing Belarus in all this. And that's a problem because if you want to fly from large swaths of the world to other swaths of the world, Russia is in the middle of most of that. And so there's a lot of concern about flying over Russian airspace because there's so much of it. And there's so many people who've said things about Russia, activists, journalists, politicians, if we start to have a real concern about who can fly over what airspace, this is really to make things very difficult to get around in the world. I know you and I both were thinking about going to Estonia this summer for a, a conference, the European Research Group on mili Militaries and Society. And luckily, Estonia can be accessed by us 
from out without flying over Russia or Belarus, but for a lot of other folks, that would be a, a real problem. So mm-hmm. I guess it's a good thing there's a pandemic going on that's restricting our travel. Yeah, definitely attending this conference virtually, but uh, I know many people are planning to attend in, in person. It'll be somewhat of a hybrid event, but it was a, it was an interesting story to, to read. And I just keep thinking, you know, for the people on that Ryanair flight, I wonder if they, did they see the MiG fighter jet that was sort of dispatched to divert the, the plane back to Minsk? What kind of experience must that have been like on the plane? It must've been incredibly scary. You know, whenever a plane starts to land someplace where you're not supposed to land, that nothing good can be happening. And so it must've been really scary for them. And the challenge here is that Russia is again, chipping away at the norms of international relations. And I don't think that Putin asked Lukashenko to do it, but Lukashenko did it probably feeling pretty confident that he would have Putin support. And Putin has been quite enthusiastic about uh, supporting him in all of this. And it raises questions about what can we do about it? You know, how, how can we sanction Lukashenko? How can we sanction the Russians who are supporting them? What's it going to mean for international air travel? We just live in a time where a lot of what we take for granted now up in the air because you have countries that matter. Belarus is not a country that matters. Russia is a country that matters. And by basically validating Belarus's strategy here, it sends a message to lots of countries around the world about how to handle dissidents. Well, if they're flying nearby you, hmm, you can catch them, can't you? And I I just think that's super disturbing. It is disturbing. And I'm glad that you raised sort of the international ramifications of this individual incident. I think they're important. I think that, you know, as we ramp up to the NATO summit, uh, there's going to be more and more uh, scrutiny on the Europe-Russia or NATO-Russia relationship. But also, you know, it it struck me that with this story, you know, we're, we're back to having some media attention on, on Belarus and we hadn't had sustained media attention since the last elections, uh, as, as you mentioned, in the, the protests, which lasted for several months. But that doesn't mean that activists and, and journalists aren't still being harassed, arrested and, and detained. So maybe bringing some awareness back to, to that and their plight uh, is, is important too. And then, of course, uh, you know, what does the future of Belarus really look like? I know, you know, speaking like a, a realist in international politics, Belarus is not a country that matters, but, ha- you know, does it continue to turn inward and eastward? Does its economy cripple and collapse under European sanction? What really happens? What does the future of Belarus look like? Is, is a, a question that I, I was also pondering when, when thinking about this individual incident. So we're not going to speculate about that that now. Uh, you alluded to some, some broader ramifications, but uh, uh, we'll continue to, to track. And certainly as we get closer and closer to the NATO summit, there are a bunch of issues that are going to make it onto the agenda and regional instability you know, on uh, NATO's so-called eastern flank is probably likely going to be a topic of dis- discussion. Yes, Belarus has been lagging behind everybody else for ever since it became an independent country. And there was often suspicion that it might get un- unified with Russia at some point. I think for Russia, it might be more convenient to keep Belarus out than in, but we'll see about that. And yes, we'll keep tracking this. Our feature interview today is with Sarah Miriam Martin-Boulay and Thomas Junot. This being our 50th, uh, not, not our 50th anniversary, our 50th episode. I think we had a good conversation. We we both have known Thomas and Sarah Miriam for quite some time. So uh, it was a pretty good give and take about what they've been doing and what we've been up to uh, lately. And then I'll have my 
recommendations for stuff to watch these days. And most of it is pretty animated. As always, good to talk to you about these issues. Your expertise on the gender issues of the Canadian Armed Forces has really come to the fore in the past several months in these conversations. And we'll just need to get a legal beagle in to talk to us about the, the Fish Report, because I, I'm not sure that we can make that much sense of 400 pages of, uh, of this kind of analysis. Plus, delegation on this kind of stuff is very helpful for us to get through this. Oh, I agree. This uh, this report is a little beyond my my reach and my my capacity. You know, we're political scientists and specialists in international relations, so you have to recognize when uh, you need to to seek out some expertise outside of your area. And this is definitely the the case for this fish review. So uh, I look forward to discussing this further next time we meet and drawing from that outside expertise. And have a have a good week, Steve. And we'll be in touch soon. Great. This is the 50th episode of Battle Rhythm, and we thought, who better to talk to than folks that we dragged into this enterprise? Uh, Thomas Junot and Sarah Miriam Martin Boulay, who are the co-hosts of, here we go, uh, Consolée de Sécurité. Uh, my French is not very good. It is a French podcast. I've just saw, see the two of them shake their heads and just, you know, they're not, they're not fans of my French accent, and nor should anybody else be. So, uh, Tomas and Sarah Miriam, after about six months of podcasting, how do you feel about the experience? And, and, and uh, are you still mad at me for, for getting involved with this? So, we've done 14 episodes so far of Conseil de Sécurité, or Conseil de Sécurité, as you, <laughs> as you just said. Uh, and uh, we are taping the 15th episode uh, next week. Um, so we don't have the the extent of, of of shows that you you two have done, but I think for 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 speaking for myself, let's see what Sarah Miriam has to say right after that. But it's 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 fun. Um, but I, the main value added for me as a you know, and I, I I hope that it's the same for you. And having talked to other colleagues who host podcasts, notably the intrepid folks on the national security side, as researchers, it's really useful. We, we interview interesting and knowledgeable and smart people, and we learn a lot. So I, I consider that, that the, the time that we spend on this, interviewing the people and getting ready for, for the interviews, is just a good investment in terms of uh, our work as permanent students who spend our time reading and learning uh, from smart people. Uh, so for me, this, this has been really useful. I agree. And and actually, Thomas, is that we just did our 15, we just released our 15th episode this week with, with Severino Tessar. And I, I fully concur that doing a podcast is the best excuse to reach out to people and ask a bit of their time to talk about, about their work. What has been wonderful is the partnership with Thomas as well, because although I think we're both passionate about international relations and, and those studies, we approach this from very different angles. And of course, uh, Thomas is a specialist well, including the Middle East is a specialist of many things, but of defense issues. But Thomas has more, uh, we have different networks as well. And, and that's that's quite interesting to, to get into that partnerships. And also it's, it's wonderful to have the discussion on who will be the next guest, because we're really trying to have a, a diverse set of, of guests. So we've had uh, practitioners, academics, politicians from different political families and affiliation. And that's quite interesting for us to, to have like their 30 minutes or 40 minutes of their time to, to ask her questions. So it's really a treat. 
If I can uh, just follow up on, on this, I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how you work, uh, maybe starting from the very beginning when you launched the podcast, you had to choose a name, you have to justify the name, and then you have to figure out how you're going to work together and how you're going to pick your topics and your guests. Can you give us a glimpse into how you work together? Well, finding a topic, we uh, we followed uh, Steve's wisdom of uh, crowdsourcing for a name, and we received several suggestions. And then we went uh, with a pun, right? We're, we're trying to, and and also to refer to a symbol. I mean, Conseil de Sécurité is like the Security Council of the UN, so there was this reference to uh, an international forum. And then uh, what was interesting is to ask ourselves, Thomas and I, what was our style? So I know that. For example, Steve can speak improvise very freely <laughs> on on most on every issues and that's great and certainly not my style which I need to be a bit more planned and I'm learning how to be an interviewer in a podcast style and not for a research style so so we 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 had this discussion on what type of dynamic we wanted to establish uh, for our first podcast and and another thing that that is the result of of some deliberation but also uh, just how it evolved over the last few months is we did decide that we would be fairly broad uh, in terms of the topics we cover and, and not to focus only on Canadian defense in a, in a fairly narrow way. So uh, we talked to the Minister of the Status of Women in Mali, for example, and, and even though we did touch on some questions that were security focused, the UN mission in Mali, for example, we also just talked about the situation of women and children in Mali uh, in the context of the pandemic, not even from a security perspective. When we had Tom Mulcair, uh, the former chief of the NDP on, uh, we talked about climate change and a lot of the conversation was just climate change. It wasn't even climate change and security. And, and to some extent that's necessary background, but our view was these two individuals in particular and others are interesting folks. Let's just see where the conversation goes. So there is a security and defense nexus for sure. But we've interpreted that uh, fairly with a fair bit of flexibility. And I will add that maybe because of a francophone sensibility, we we were also very conscious and wanted to um, to be diverse in the representation of regions we were discussing. So uh, whether it be South America, Africa, uh, Europe, uh, North America, uh, but beyond that, also not only a diversity of gender, of professions, but also of accents. Uh, of course, we want to reach out to the francophonie in general, and and there are many accents, and it it's uh, I think there's a music right to the accent so it's not only we've had interviews with with people who speak French but have another mother tongue and I think that's beautiful to to also reflect that diversity so if I think about Jose Maria Aranas for example who's a uh, Spanish we've had um, Najat Rojdi of course she's a francophone but she was uh, uh, originally from Morocco Bintou uh, as well the former minister in Mali so we've had a diversity as well of 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 accent and of way to be francophone. If we talk about just uh, Rosie Barton, who's also an anglophone, but who uh, came to speak uh, to us uh, in French. And, and I think that's uh, that's something as, as well that we're trying to to promote how to speak in French, even though it, it is your mother tongue or with different accents. One small point on, on that is I find that there's a lot of, or there's not that many, but every now and then French Canadians go on English TV or radio in Canada to comment or do whatever, but Anglo-Canadians quite rarely come on French media in Quebec. 
partly because few speak good enough French. That's absolutely true, and that's a big problem. But also, just beyond that very real reality, that very real problem, it's just not something that the Quebec media do a lot. So for us to go and get Anglo-Canadians like Rosie Barton, who happens to speak really good French, or uh, a gen retired General Dennis Thompson, for example, to come on the podcast to speak in French, there's that meeting of two solitudes in, in, at the Canadian level, beyond the international dimension that Sarah Miriam just mentioned, that was also important for us. I almost thought that Sarah Miriam was saying that my bad accent was part of the, the, the music, and I was like, mm, I don't think so. You've talked about some of the people you've interviewed. Are there, there the dream interviews that you haven't approached or that you've tried and haven't gotten yet that you're, you're trying to think of, 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 of? I mean, you got the foreign minister as your first interview. So that was, that was very impressive. And, and it well, seems to me that there is a desire on the part of, of folks in government to speak to a, a Francophone audience because they don't get that many invites. So I, th I think that, that you've been using that quite well to, to get some really high profile people. But is there somebody that either you haven't asked yet because Beyonce doesn't speak French well, or is there somebody else out there that, that you're looking at uh, is, is, uh, is on your dream list? So that, that's a good point, that getting people from the government to come and speak on the podcast has not been a problem in the sense that uh, they rarely get an opportunity to speak publicly in French. They get more opportunities to speak publicly in English. So for those that do speak French, which obviously excludes a large number of them, uh, but for those that do, we haven't met any kind of resistance. You know, normal questions are asked, how does it work, etc. But, you know, a couple of podcasts ago, we had the Assistant Deputy Minister for Science and Technology at National Defense, Isabelle Desmarty. She was very keen to come. And, and, and part of her idea was to use the podcast as a way to help their hiring efforts, that they could actually show the podcast to, to, to people who would be interested, you know, engineers and researchers that they hire on the SNT side in, in defense as kind of as a tool in that sense. So that side has been quite effective, I, I, I think. And I'm, I'm assuming that in the next year, that won't be a problem also. The one thing that we have not been able to do so far, and, and it's just been a question of circumstances because it's been only 15 episodes and then, but it, we've wanted to make sure that we get a good balance of political views. So we got the Minister of Foreign Affairs, François-Philippe Champagne, when he was still the minister back then for our first show, but we wanted to make sure that we would get representatives from other political parties, not just liberals, because this is not a government or a liberal podcast. So we did approach people from the NDP without luck. And, and you know, when you think about it, there are not that many people in the NDP who speak French, who can speak to, uh, about foreign and defense policy matters. And so in the end, we got Tom Mulcair, who's a former uh, head of the NDP, which he wasn't speaking to us as the former head of the NDP. He was speaking to us as a, as a professor at Montreal University now, but still, right, there was that perspective we tried a bit on the Conservative Party side, but it's when you think of it, it's a bit the same thing. There are not that many people in the Conservative Party who can speak in French about foreign and defense policy issues. So next year, my hope is that we can keep trying and, and get somebody on the Conservative side and actively on the NDP side and eventually on the Bloc and Greens side, if, if that's possible, because we do want to get these voices participating in, in the debate in French. Uh, Sarah Mead, is anybody who, who you're thinking of that you'd like to have on the podcast that you haven't gotten on yet? Well, many, of course. Many people would like to have on the podcast. I mean, and I agree with Thomas that that's what, we're, what we want to do is to be as representative and as diverse as, as possible, different voices. On personal side, I mean, there's always those dream personalities or figures I'd like to interview. I was uh, thinking about, uh, for example, Stella Remington, the first MI5 director, first female director. I mean, that would be, of course, amazing. Bintu Keita, who's 
the Secretary General of the UN, but of course that's that's revealing that I'm I'm um, the representative of the Secretary General of the UN at the MONUSCO. But that's very much into my my field as well, and these are superstars in my field, which I I would love to uh, have a chance to have a talk to. But also maybe something we could we'll we'll talk with Thomas is to have as well, for lack of a better word, local peoples from different fields. You know, we um we travel uh, extensively. Thomas and I usually without uh, the pandemic and I mean maybe having a podcast with locals or or civilians that are in remote areas that voices we don't hear actually talk about their everyday life and their security issues. Uh, for example, if uh, the pandemic slows down and I can finally go back to Central African Republic or to Mali or to the, the DRC, you know, asking civilians how they see their security issues and, and um, how, they, how, how they can explain their own context. That's something that could be quite interesting to hear back in Canada. It's just different voices, different concerns as well. So maybe that would be it kind of a dream interview with people that we don't talk to usually. And that's a good point, uh, Sarah Miriam, and it got me thinking about early on in our podcast, Steve and I would capitalize on our fieldwork opportunities and our conference travels in order to corner guests. No, I'm kidding, but in order to make some connections with some experts in the field. And so when we were reflecting earlier on how we plan for these episodes, a lot of our interviews were dictated by events, the conferences that we did and, and fieldwork that we carried out. And that hasn't been the case, obviously, in the last year, where maybe our decision-making process was a bit different in terms of who we reached out to. And I like how Thomas put it also earlier about the podcast complementing our own interests as researchers and getting us to think about issues more broadly. And certainly that's been the case for me. Uh, I really like to think of ourselves as uh, eternal students. I mean, we started university and undergrad and essentially we've never left <laughs> university. And so whenever I prepare for the podcast and think about the issues that we need to cover, I necessarily think about international security in broader terms than when I do for my own research program. And I think that's a very healthy reflex. So I, I think that's what I would like to ask you next is thinking back on the interviews that you've done or the materials that you've read in preparation for those interviews, you know, what has stuck with you most or what has been influential in terms of your own research projects or programs? You know, is there an aha moment that you've had in terms of interacting with uh, your, your guests? Or maybe there's new topics uh, that have landed on your desk and now that you want to pursue further? A lot of, of points, I think, to, to answer that, but one that, that, that I would mention, not so much as an aha moment, but, you know, speaking to people in government, you know, there's this tendency among some academics, and I don't think it's the case for, for the four of us here, because, you know, we, we, we work with, with government and policymakers a lot, but there's this tendency among some academics, some in the media too, to underestimate, I think, the level of knowledge and skill of uh, public servants, you know, the, the folks that we spoke to, I mentioned the Assistant Deputy Minister for Science and Technology at DND. We spoke to the number two at the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, Michelle Tessier, uh, who is an insanely remarkable woman. That we had a good 45-minute chat with her. So I think that one, one theme that I thought was useful to pursue with the podcast was to basically give a megaphone, give a voice to these public servants who are not known to the public, especially in a country like Canada, where public servants really don't play a public role compared to the US uh, in particular, 
to allow them to, to talk about what they do, to show that their level of knowledge, their skill, et cetera, that's good for us. We benefit from it. We learn a lot. But I think it, it, it hopefully can, can help communicate that message of the level of skill and knowledge in, in the government. The second point that I mentioned on that, where I learned a lot, speaking in particular for, to Michel Tessier from CSIS and to a couple others, is how government has adapted to the pandemic. Uh, we, we didn't specifically focus on that for uh, entire interviews, but we asked a lot of questions. How have you dealt with the pandemic from a CSIS perspective? How, do you, how has it impacted your work, threats to Canada, your ability to, you know, as somebody who manages human sources, et cetera, how do you do that in a context of a pandemic? And to just listen to, to government folks explaining how the pandemic has changed and not changed their life, what lessons they learned, uh, what were the challenges, what lessons they learned during the pandemic that they'll be able to carry over after the pandemic? Are that, you know, have they learned about efficiencies, et cetera? That I think has, has also been very useful. For me, I think, and, and you mentioned it well, uh, Stephanie, that it, it allows us to broaden our interests and to ask more questions and, um, and to discover new puzzles and, and new situations. And it also forces us, of course, to go outside of our own bubble. As we all know, we tend to speak with similarly uh, thinking people, similar mindset. Uh, we speak in the same narratives often. We use the same words. And, and we speak of people that are more or less in our same kind of social and professional bubbles. And doing the podcast allows us to go outside of that. And I guess one of the haha moments for me was not so much in terms of, it, it was of course in terms of content, but more of that in terms of emotion. So for example, talking about to uh, Najat Rojdi, who was speaking to us from Beirut just after, of course, the explosions in Lebanon. And she's seasoned, of course, policymaker leaders in, in the UN circle. But she is not only very strong on substance and, and, and very smart and brilliant, but what makes her stand out is how much she cares and the empathy she brings to the substance she gives us. So not only is she able to explain to us a situation very clearly explaining the stakes and the stakeholders and the different actors involved, but she also conveys at the same time a passion and empathy, a caring, a compassion, which was for me a haha moment of saying, wow, this is deeply rooted in a situation. And, and, and that's an interview that is certainly staying with me how natural she was and how, how brilliant that was to be able to, to convey so much complexity with the emotions as well. And sometimes that we, we don't do that, right? When we talk about conflict issues, we're often quite dry in the way we, we describe the different stakes. So I think that was, that was something that I was uh, uh, very amazed by. And also something that is always interesting is to deconstruct preconceived ideas. And in preparing for the interview with the former minister in Mali, former minister, because of course we've, we all know that the situation was uh, complicated in Mali this week and she's no longer minister since since a few days but it was a question of how to deal with for example genital mutilations or how to deal with uh, domestic violence or gender gender issues or um, conflict related sexual violence uh, there was uh, there was a discussion on why why does the government refuse to um, to make it illegal to have for example genital mutilations and in preparing for the interviews we had to read that what she was putting forward saying that maybe the legal route is not the most efficient route. It's better to go and meet the communities, talk to them and not make it illegal right away. So there was this, this other way of doing things. So she was really deconstructing an idea or a, a liberal democracy uh, reflex of saying, well, just make it illegal, punish those who do it, and then it will solve the problem. And she was explaining to us a different type
types of approach to different communities. So not to alienate herself from uh, political adversaries or for different communities. And, and that's beautiful to hear and important, more, more than beautiful, it's important to hear that there are many ways to get to the same objective. And we need to talk about those, those many ways that might be or that are certainly more efficient. So that were, that were my two uh, big moments. Those are great examples, uh, Sarah Miriam, and I think the quality of the answers that you're getting to are tied to your how well you're doing in terms of uh, interviewing your guests. I think there is an art to it, and I'm sure initially, you know, you have to unlearn a lot of uh, of the way that we've learned things in in academia in terms of how we present things, how we speak, the terms that we use, exactly as you just said, uh, uh, prefacing your answer. And there's a different style of interviewing than for the research interviews that we do in the field. So I think uh, eventually you find your your rhythm, your voice as podcast co-host, and uh, you two have really nailed it. So well done. Thank you. That's very nice. If I can ask the two of you, it's been 50 episodes now of Battle Rhythm. Before I, I ask you to look ahead in terms of where you see Battle Rhythm evolving, what would the, you know, the key two or three lessons that you've learned? And, and you know, we've just touched on, on some, and Stephanie uh, summarized that very well, but takeaways for you from 50 episodes of uh, Battle Rhythm. Uh, I feel like I'm going to be copying from Saham Yahim's playbook uh, <laughs> a tad, but to me it's is to hear also the, the human side of, of the story and the personal vignettes that people bring to the table. Uh, again, we don't do that enough in the context of uh, conferences. We don't really open up and I'm hoping that through the episodes we've been able to set the stage for a comfortable, informal, relaxed conversation with our guests where they can let their personalities shine through. So to me, that has been a lesson learned because initially you're so worried about getting the right content and the right guests, but really it's important to set the right climate for the conversation, even you know when it's when it's virtual. And so to me, that has been uh, the, the most important lesson learned. And, and at the end of the day, I just, I really want the guest who comes on Battle Rhythm to feel comfortable and comfortable enough to open up. Maybe if I can go on with a question for, for you as well, you've mentioned your lessons learned. And a question I had is when you started the podcast, did you have an idea of the ideal audience you wanted to reach? And has that changed? I mean, in the sense that has the audience changed or were you surprised by the audience you have now? Are you surprised by the change of audience or the people you've been able to reach out to with the podcast throughout the 50 latest episodes? I'll let Steph answer this question, but the one thing I would say is when people say, hey, I, I follow you on Twitter, I immediately get embarrassed and apologize. When people say that they listen to the podcast, I am pleased. So that, that tells you something about my level of confidence about what we're doing and, and who, you know, it gets me a glimmer of the, who the audience is, but I'll let Steph speak to this. Yeah. The challenge with, with audiences is that we don't have a clear breakdown of who the listeners are. So we have a, an anecdotal sense of who listens, but when you get the stats on, on audience, you can't really break it down in any meaningful way to know the key demographics. However, when we first started this podcast, I had a feeling that it would stay very much within the academic community. I thought it would be colleagues and students listening to us. And I was really surprised to see the growing following within the Canadian Armed Forces. And often when I would attend military events or, or social events, I would have people in uniform come to me and, and tell me about the podcast. And I, 
I was surprised about that and pleased. So I, I do know that we have a following within the, the CAF and I'm always happy to see that people from different ages, different ranks, different backgrounds, professional backgrounds and occupations. So that I'm, I'm very happy about. I would also like you know more undergraduate students to, to listen. <laughs> so I could drop hints about the podcast before when I taught large undergraduate international relations classes and, and that's no longer the case. But I'm wondering how do we get folks who are just coming into university really excited about security and defense issues because uh, they're interested in international relations more broadly, but about defense issues maybe less so. So if I'm thinking in the future, the different ways in which we, we'd like to grow our audience, I would really like to focus on, on that undergraduate audience to get them excited about defense issues. And Tomas reminded and me that, that one of the, our listeners is my sister. I've got two sisters, and the one who's least likely to listen to a Defense Security podcast is the one who's listening. And I think that when we started out, we definitely wanted to aim for broader audiences. So we tried to minimize the jargon. We try to explain things so that way people who don't follow the news as, as obsessively as, as we do can get the basics. And we try to keep things at a fairly informal level. And when we talk to people, we try not to ask questions that elicit really long jargon stuff. And when they do, we edit that stuff out if, as much as we can. I'd say that we aimed at the public wide audiences and it, it has been striking how the folks who approach us, a lot of them tend to be folks either in or near the military. So that, that, that's been a bit of a surprise, but I guess there's not a whole lot of, of folks doing what we're doing. So that's been a, a I think that's a, that's a key point. And, and you know, if, if you look back at, you know, the, the, the pioneer of security international podcasts in Canada is Intrepid uh, yeah. with Stephanie Carvin and Craig Forsyth. And their podcast, it's been uh, maybe four years now, three, four years, I'm not sure. Long um, longer than that. It, it got, it has, it still has a, a huge listening uh, crowd in the government, uh, largely because there is so little public debate on security, defense, international issues in Canada. The media covers it a bit, but not a lot, not in depth. We don't have a big think tank scene, et cetera, et cetera. So when, when Intrepid came out, it just filled a, and did it very well, but it filled a massive vacuum, a massive gap. Uh, and I think that that uh, for, for you, when you followed on the defense side, which was a bit different than what Trepid does, and then when we come in doing it on the French side, there's a big demand. And speaking as a former public servant, you know, people on the civilian side at DND, on the military side, in the intelligence community, at foreign affairs, in most cases, these are people who want to read, who want to learn, but don't have access to that much information. And if you add to that a, the reality of the Canadian government that is not very transparent, generally speaking, for a lot of people at the staff level, so the majority of folks in the community, when they hear their bosses, whether it's the minister or the deputy director at CSIS or an ADM at DND, we have a three-star general uh, next week, that's hard for them to, to listen to. You know, they don't have access to these people on a day-to-day -day basis. So to just get the opportunity to listen to them is very useful. So I think that fills a niche and a gap uh, that was there. The other thing in terms of audience that I'd add from our side, which is some, something that I did not expect, you know, reaching people on the public service side, that I think I, I maybe because of my, my own biases and, and background, I, I saw that. One feedback that I'm also getting from our podcast is Anglophone public servants who listen to our podcast to practice their French. And when I first heard that, I thought it sure. was a bit of a, of a bit of a joke, but it's not. And I think that's great for Anglophone public servants who want to learn and improve their French, it's hard. There is not always enough training, uh, their work environment. The reality is that it's not bilingual. Uh, so this podcast, which talks about the issues that they work on, allows them to listen to people, as Miriam was saying, with a variety of accents, 
Moroccan, Malian, uh, Spanish, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's an additional resource. And I, I mean, I actually know of a former colleague of mine at DD who circulated links to the podcast to his colleagues who were trying to, to improve and practice their French. So if that's another niche that we can fill, then, then that's great. That's fantastic. I also think that one of the things that makes us, the four of us, different than of the common voices is, well, we all have tenure now, and we don't owe government anything. We don't owe private sector anything. We're part of the CGI network, but we don't, we're not sponsored by any defense co company. And so I think that, that we provide a perspective that people don't hear, which is a blunt perspective. Uh, it's not, you know, when we appear on TV, we're usually being fit into the narrative of whichever reporter who's interviewed us, or when we fit into the newspapers where we're edited. So that way we end up supporting whatever the narrative of the, the journalist is. And this is one of the few ways in which we can provide unfiltered views about the things of the day where we, you know, can be seen as critical voices that, that otherwise people don't hear because, you know, nobody's going to give us a job or nobody's going to deny us a job based on what we do on our podcast. And I think that, I think that's something that people outside, you know, out there in the world value is that kind of independence because we don't have the think tanks. We don't have the, 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 those other reservoirs of, of expertise. And so cranky academics are, are interesting because we're cranky and we can say things that other people can't say. And I think that that's played out in the past several months for, for Steph and I, that we've been particularly cranky about how things have been going on on the personnel file of the Canadian Armed Forces and D&D. So I, I think that's something that we bring to the table. And I, I think that also helps to, for us to reach audiences that otherwise, you know, why would they care about what I have to say? Any last thoughts before we, we then have our, our 50th episode beers and, and wines and champagne? Last quick question for the two of you. Big plans for next year once you go to 51 and above? I would say that we'll be thinking about that. <laughs> we, uh, we meet every six months, two of us at a producer, and we look at the numbers and we look at the patterns of who we talk to and try to make course corrects. So that way, if we're hitting a certain community a lot and other, other folks in the community less often, then we try to try to reach out to those people. I think we'll be probably talking a little less about the personnel file in the next six months, because I hope that there's not another person fired next week we have to talk about. So I think I think maybe we'll be focused a little bit less on, on that particular controversy, but we've been following the news. And so that means that we can't really be that strategic in terms of the topic we cover. Stephanie, do you have any grand plans for the next year that we haven't talked about yet? I just want to go back on the road, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite eager to do these podcasts uh, on the road again, because I liked how that was integrated into my travel routine. But in the meantime, to me, co-hosting the, the podcast with you, Steve, has been like doing the field work uh, virtually um, because we put a lot of, of that research field work on, on hold. And sometimes you find ways around it. For instance, Tamai and I are co-authoring a paper on Operation Unified Protector that was NATO operation in Libya in 2011. And because we, we had such hard deadlines, we did these interviews virtually and they were great, but it wasn't the same at all in terms of, of creating that, that right climate for the research interview. So at least many of the interviews that, that we've had, and including those on personnel, to me, complemented my research in interesting ways and was like quasi fieldwork at times, really informing my views on, on these topics. I noticed how she made talking to me every two weeks sound like it's a lot of work. No, I I mean, Steve, what I really appreciate about you as a co-host too is that you laugh at my jokes and I'm like, no one laughs at my jokes. <laughs> well, you know, if you had guys that asked me what my biggest surprise starting out was, I thought that she'd be laughing at my jokes, but it turns out the podcast is more full of my really loud 
laughter at, at Stephanie. She, I always knew she was funny. I didn't realize how funny she was until we were, we were talking every two weeks. So I think that would be my biggest surprise is, is that the comedian of, of, of Battle Rhythm is Stephanie and not me. I think you're just uh, tired on Tuesday morning, so I, I get to benefit from that. Tamajuno, Sarah, Miriam, Martin Poulet. It was so great to have you come on Battle Rhythm. And I hope we'll do more of these crossover episodes as we celebrate uh, important milestones for both of our podcasts. Again, you're doing excellent work. And uh, thank you for complimenting us on uh, Battle Rhythm. Thank you both Thanks. so much for being there. Yeah. Thank Thanks for so having much. us on. And congratulations again on 50... Uh, episodes and here's a virtual beer to 50 others for sure thank you uh, for this week's R segment i've got two animated shows and then one podcast uh, the first animated show is the mitchells versus the machines it's about a family facing a robot apocalypse. And it's really about a father and a daughter having struggles. So she's about to go off to university and the father's not handling it particularly well. And it's delightful. It's really funny. The animation is fantastic. It plays to all ages. Uh, it's really just a fun, fun movie to watch. And it makes good fun of Apple and Google and, and other folks like that. And so definitely watch that. It's on Netflix. Something that dropped a little more recently is the second season of Love, Death, and Robots, which is an animated anthology series. So each season has something like six to 10 episodes. The episodes range from being like three to five minutes long to some 10 or 20 minutes long. And the animation of each episode is different from every other anime, uh, episode. And some are funny, some are super, you know, some are mildly dark, and they're just really engaging. And so my wife and I polished off the second season very quickly last night um, with one of the best Christmas episodes of anything I've ever watched. It's only about three minutes long, but it's just terrific. And the podcast, Dead Eyes. Dead Eyes is a very different kind of podcast than this one. Dead Eyes is about an actor who was fired by Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks was directing an episode of Band of Brothers back in 2001. And it's about this actor's quest to understand that, to understand its impact on himself, to understand how Hollywood works, uh, essentially. And... It's funny because the guy is a comedian. He's been a member of the UCD improv group and he gets some really incredible interviews. He hasn't interviewed Tom Hanks yet, but he's interviewed a bunch of people who were in the in Band of Brothers. He interviewed the, one of the writers of Band of Brothers, that episode. We learned a little bit about the history of the Band of Brothers TV show through this process. We also learned about other actors and how their careers have been sidelined or, or changed by happenstance. Seth Rogen appears in one episode. The soundtrack of this guy's post Band of Brothers depression was Amy Mann. So Amy Mann ended up being on the podcast. It's a really an interesting podcast. There's now two seasons of it. So there's 20 episodes. You'd think that this could be something that resolved in a couple episodes, but it keeps going on and on. And it's just really, really interesting. And you get a very interesting angles on, on the making of TV shows uh, and the making of movies as well by, by translation. And you won't think less of Tom Hanks as, as part of this process because everybody in the, the interviews all agree that Tom Hanks is a wonderful human being. But anyway, that's the Dead Eyes podcast available all, throughout the usual podcast outlets. And so the, those are my recommendations for this week. And as always, get your second shot if you can. Get your first shot if you haven't got it yet. Keep wearing masks until we're you know further through this thing. And be well. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS. 
or email them to cdsn.rcds at outlook.com. Thank you.